This week on FX Guide TV. We're down here at the Sidgraph Show looking at some of the new technology from Adobe, as well as the Alembic and OpenColor I.O. open source projects. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale, and boy, do we have a fun show for you this week, again from Vancouver and SIGGRAPH 2011. Now, each year, SIGGRAPH hosts some of the most interesting, technical, and, well, let's face it, obtuse graphics presentations in the world. And this year was no exception. So yes, of course, we're here in Vancouver with SIDGRAPH and we've got technical talks, we've got papers, but we've also got a really good opportunity to talk to a number of the equipment manufacturers that are here. And John, you managed to catch up with one of them earlier. Yeah, there's a big kind of leak video. Was it a leak or an accident? Well, you know, they say it was actually an accident. Yeah. And they actually, I think it was an accident, but a video went out showing some new technology from Adobe, which effectively was some 3D extrusions, some rendering and so forth. And basically what they were doing is on the NVIDIA show floor booth, they're actually demonstrating some new technologies that we might or might not see in an upcoming Adobe product. Technical uh, show. Yes, exactly. So we caught up with Steve Ford, who's now on the After Effects team, to give us the inside scoop on what they're showing. So we've been working with Adobe on their experimentation with ray tracing and compositing. And what they wanted to do was to leverage the GPU. They, they knew that for their rendering, they wanted ray traced effects. And they also knew that to make that practical for speed, for what compositors needed, they needed to leverage the GPU. GPU programming isn't necessarily so easy. And that's why we created Optics, which is an underlying library that makes it easy for them. And so it, it allowed their, their developers to quickly create their renderer, um, not only as a renderer itself, but then also then to leverage the GPU to get very, very fast. Yeah, because frankly, there are a lot of renders. It takes a lot of time to develop a render, and by relying on you, that's just one thing they didn't have to do. They just had to make sure they got you the data correctly into the card. That's exactly right. Uh, Optics does two things. Not only does it do the GPU work, it does a lot of the heavy lifting that you would normally have to do for a, for a renderer, and allows them to concentrate on what a renderer, what a user sees from a renderer. You know, all the effects and techniques. Let's them, you know, really uh, concentrate on. Um, qualities of what a compositor would need, um, whereas we do all the dirty work. You know, obviously, SIGGRAPH is very much about research. So this is where we work with our partners to try and figure out what solutions we may come out with in the future. Uh, so in this case, we're actually working with NVIDIA. Um, obviously, with the Mercury Playback Engine in Premiere Pro, we saw outstanding success uh, in the performance that we got leveraging CUDA uh, and NVIDIA. So now we've been just doing some experimentation, trying to figure out how does that mean you know, for things in motion graphics and visual effects. Um, and one of the areas that we're starting just playing with from a research perspective is, okay, well, let's talk about geometry, uh, simple extrusion of text or shapes. Uh, what kind of interoperability could be there in the future for uh, things with 3D authoring tools uh, and that kind of thing. So that's, that's the gist of what we're, we're showing right now. I mean, we're demonstrating that uh, because of the work we're doing with NVIDIA here in the NVIDIA booth. Um, and just canvassing users to see what they think um, and where we might go with it. 
don't know whether it's ever going to make it in a product one day, but right. you know, it's it's interesting research. So as part of that research, I'm sure some of the process is determining is it something that you can support technologically across multiple vendors or graphics cards. I mean, what kind of things do you look at when you're deciding? to implement something like this? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's there's a couple of factors. Uh, After Effects users are on multiple platforms, right? So, and obviously, After Effects has a huge Mac component uh, compo- associated with it. We have varying levels. I mean, even, you know, my workstation now is a MacBook Pro with the quad, uh, with Thunderbolt, and all that kind of stuff. And Adobe's always been, its strength has always been trying to be as, as platform agnostic as possible. That being said, also the research side is, is that well, where can we start? You always have to start somewhere, right? And that's where I think um, you know the the expertise that Nvidia um, has been providing us uh, makes it very good to uh, at least do experimentation, right. see what level of performance we can achieve, and the you know the interactivity we can get to. And then the other thing we can start to do is then say, okay, how do we roll this out? And that's why we can't commit to whether it's ever going to be in a product. Because we know our users are on multiple platforms, and if we're going to bring out with completely new functionality in an application for motion graphics, it has to support those environments. Obviously, you know one of the primary things that even even in you know two D, <laughs> uh, you know the ability to bring in Illustrator as footage, and then to say convert that into a shape layer uh, is really what we're working on. So as an example, um, I'll just actually start with a completely new comp. And you know, I've just been playing with the Adobe logo, um, you know, as a really simple mechanism. But if I bring in something like that um, as footage from Illustrator, you know, we're we're trying to play with all right, how can we take that and just create a shape from it? Because if we could do a simple extrusion of text and shape, that would be a natural good place to start. So as an example, I'll bring that in. Again, it's research, so it's not <laughs> done. Um, just let me bring that over so it's the center of the screen. And I'll just do the top half. I won't bother doing the bottom. But um, you know, from that perspective, there's a traditional shape layer that we have, and then basically saying, you know, there's there's two types of rendering situations. Obviously, your draft renderer. Going back to your early comment about agnostic, the draft renderer is a, is a brand new use of OpenGL that we're trying to experiment with, and that doesn't matter what kind of card you have, right? So we're focused on that one from an interactivity side. And if I take that and turn this shape layer into 3D space, I now have a few, you know, a few more options there, geometry, material. And then I want to do simple things like uh, extrude it. Um, you know, and this is, again, we'd never anticipate a tool you know, for motion graphics becoming a 3D modeler. Um, this is just simple, simple stuff uh, that you may be able to get going quick and dirty. And what I like to think of from a future research perspective is what's the really cool interop, like say maybe sending stuff to a 3D authoring to environment and then bring that stuff back. Um, so those things I think are really important. But as an example, this is using pure GPU, right? And actually that gives me a good opportunity to show from that perspective, you know, what it, what it kind of looks like. And at the same time, so I start rendering that. Obviously, it's going from there, but I'll bring up the CPU monitor. And, you know, this is something that we've never provided before. This is going entirely through the GPU pipeline, using the optics toolkit from NVIDIA and shooting rays. 
uh, at our at our scene. Now, uh, again, it's that's not good from an interactivity perspective, and that's why we've also got are working on the OpenGL component to be able to just have really fast, and I'll show you that in a sec. But just to be clear, the optics is actually a true ray tracer. So it's a you're true ray tracer. demoing within this tech demo, actually utilizing ray tracing. And that's the selecting number of rays you're talking about. You choose how many rays you want to throw at it, and basically that's, you know, as an example, if I bring this down, this, this workstation has a Quadro 6000 with a Tesla uh, co-processing card. Um, and if I bring that down to like even, you know, I'll show you, that's 32 rays per pixel um, that I'm shooting. I'll bring it down to four, right, from that side. And, you know, now I've got nice interactivity. But if I bring that up in even to, say, uh, I'll bring it up to back to 32, this is, it just shows you the difference between the draft renderer and the final renderer. So again, that's going to think for a second. Folks are going to either want to work in a simple composition in the real ray tracer, but in a more complex environment with environment maps and all those types of things, you're going to want to use a draft renderer. Now again, this is a research demo, but you're also, I'm sure, having like product discussions in-house. I mean, sure. this isn't the idea of you're going to want to create a photorealistic 3D scene and render it necessarily. No. <laughs> But I mean, that's, yeah, I mean, yeah. It, it's not a, just like some drastic shift in, in what potentially... I mean, you know, again, being honest, it's, yeah. it's we're just trying to figure out where we should go with right. it. It's That's why we're not saying, is this, you know, the automatic conclusion people would say, oh, is this going to be in CS6? Is this right. going to be... We don't know. I mean, we're frankly just trying to figure it out. I think the, the, the opportunity, though, is just that if we can figure out a really nice, and I don't know if you saw the uh, announcement by 3D Max, uh, the interoperability between 3D Max and After Effects, there's a link between the two. So the cool thing is, is if we could one day figure out how to get our pipelines and talking to each other from a geometric perspective, our renderers talking to each other, then you could have a much more seamless environment where you've got your motion graphics and compositing environment talking natively to your 3D modeling environment. And you know which one is rendering. I would imagine that you know you're going to get more pixel accurate stuff in a 3D authoring environment versus in a motion graphics. But you can bring if you could bring say geometry in one day and be able to modify that and do things with it. Um, I think that from a workflow perspective, you've had a really powerful environment to work on a, a, a you know a very well put together 3D scene, leveraging the strengths of both tools. Well, and while that was a technology showing, it did look strangely like After Effects, I it have did, to didn't say. It did, yeah. Actually, I was at a press briefing that NVIDIA gave, mm -hmm. that Adobe was at. There's a lot of discussion about the, you know, why can't we just have the Mercury Play Engine mm -hmm. into After Effects? And, of course, Adobe's very well aware that they want GPU speed up and stuff. So, that discussion's going on. We're seeing this tech demo, you know, sort of put the pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together. Yeah, and I thought it was quite interesting. He actually mentioned the idea of bringing 3D objects into After Effects. And again, he was just talking theoretically, but I found that quite interesting. And those of you who watch FX Sky TV know that a couple years ago we were at IBC and saw one of these technology demos, and it turned out to be the Mercury playback engine. So anyway, we'll see what happens, uh, I don't know, when the next release comes out. Yeah. So we're at point five on the Adobe releases. Do you mm -hmm. think this is all going to fold into the next major release, which I guess should be six? Or? Uh, you know, I really don't know. I mean, Make it would be a major guess. release, yeah. you know. But I mean, I think they are really sussing things out and seeing what they can do. But I, I think we would realistically see something like that in a release of After Effects sometime. Okay, so one of the other things that uh, happened here at the show is that it was a release of 1.0 of the, uh, well, it's basically the file format inter interchange uh, initiative that was started by Sony and ILM. Now, we picked up on this last year because they announced they were going to do it. And at that time, John, they said about three months to come out. 
And I actually contacted them, and it's on FX Guide, about six months ago and said, okay, <laughs> you know, we're halfway right. through the year, we've never heard anything from it, did the project die? And they're like, no, 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 but we decided it was a much bigger project than they went back. So uh, this whole idea is, and it's kind of a bit precise, but just to give you the lead up, and then we'll show you some of the footage from the press conference. Um, when you've got uh, an animation going on, you've got lots of rigs and stuff. Well, that's not going to be something I'm typically going to hand over to another company. But I may want to bake in the geometry. So let's say, uh, as we had a sequence uh, shown to us, uh, there was a sequence from Smurfs, for example. But this is actually being used in ILM and uh, Sony on projects like Men in Black and uh, Avengers and, and uh, Amazing Spider-Man. But anyway, let's take Smurfs. So there's a scene, it's, I don't know, like about 100 frames, that kind of thing. When you take that data and bake it down, so you've got just the geometry and not the rigs, you can end up with vast amounts of stuff because you've obviously got a rig, or right. sorry, not a rig, a model per frame. Um, and that's not a very good interchange format because it is gigabytes for just one shot. So the um, Olympic format, which has come out, literally here at the show released as 1.0, does a number of things. Firstly, it standardizes that baked format and secondly, it allows you to hand it to somebody else at a fraction of the size. So on average, you could think of the file size as being about 40%, mm -hmm. but they were getting files on uh, Optimus Prime, for example, that were like 3% yeah, of the original astounding. size. Yeah. You know. I mean, not only that, but it's a very extensible file format. So while it doesn't contain textures and all the other stuff, you could add other stuff into it over time. And I think, John, this reflects um, a kind of a move that we saw with the OpenEXR, which is the industry really benefiting from one of the major players, in this case two of them, coming forward and saying, hey, can we just standardize on this stuff? Because it ain't gonna change our bids, it isn't gonna change who gets the bids, but it'll put you know, more time and energy, and let's face it, money back into the companies by not having to waste time translating stuff. Yeah, getting the backing of the major studios I think is critical from that standpoint, but if you think of the type of R&D money that must take if each individual facility developed their own standard for this, they're basically reinventing the wheel every time they go out. And that's just actually not good in general for the industry. So it's really in all their benefits to come up with that common standard. And that's where those open standards come in. Well, the other morning they had a launch for this and uh, both Sony and ILM were very keen for us to come along so we could show you this. So we're gonna show you some of this clip. We're also gonna edit this up and actually let you see the whole thing uh, in unedited format, not now, but we'll put it separately on the site because it is a really important initiative in the same way that OpenEXR is. So let's have a clip, a quick look now at a clip from that uh, press conference. Uh, this, uh, this, this information here, if you were here last year or if you know anything else about Alembic, none of this has changed. This is, this is just what Alembic is. Uh, Alembic is an open CG interchange format. It, it's basically about uh, storing baked geometric results, baked, uh, baked out performances. Uh, Alembic, the word Alembic is actually the name, it's, it's, a, it's an alch alchemical still, right? And we chose that name very, very deliberately uh, because we wanted to get across the concept that while you're doing uh, your, uh, your work, your own special sauce, your, your magic, however you, you, you uh, put things together to get your performance out, uh, what you really want to do in order to have a, a properly sort of hardened production pipeline is distill out you know, the essence of, of that performance and basically just hand off the results, not the, not the recipe necessarily. That's really what, uh, what Alembic is about. I mentioned uh, it's for storing geometry, but it's, uh, it, it's, uh, it's, it is also open um, and extensible, so you can store other information in there. The geometry part, the dis distillation part, is really, really important. We had to make sure we got that really right in order for this to work. Uh, but uh, uh, it is open and extensible. But the, uh, it, as far as the geometry goes, we have good, solid definitions uh, for any major uh, geometric primitive that you might care about. So 
What's changed? In the last year, lots of new code. Uh, in fact, all of it's new. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when we first got together, what was it, uh, like a year and a half ago? Yeah, about a year and a half first ago. First started talking about this and, and uh, all the way up to, uh, to SIGGRAPH of last year. We actually both already had um, uh, working implementations uh, of our different ideas. And we had this great idea that, that we were going to sort of take the best from each and, uh, and try to slip them together. And we had this wild notion that, ah, that was going to take us about three months. We were just going to put one on top of the other, no big deal. Uh, well, it turns out it wasn't quite so simple. Uh, and to really get it right, uh, we, we kind of had to go, not back to the drawing board, but we just really needed to start over from a, from a clean slate. So that's why it's a whole year later that we're actually talking about 1.0. We've put a lot of uh, effort into this. Uh, so lots of new code. Uh, and that code didn't just come from us. Uh, we've got, uh, we're, we're getting uh, contributions from people in the community. The, the Alembic community is starting to heat up, uh, and that's developers in uh, other studios, but it's also developers in our uh, commercial software uh, partners as well. So in addition to the core Alembic library that we've developed and support, uh, we also did all of these reference implementations. And these are the plugins that demonstrate how to use Alembic in Maya, Houdini, RenderMan, Arnold, and Katana. Um, and I want to be really clear, we didn't develop these rep uh, reference implementations because the vendors you know, weren't doing their part. In fact, in some cases, we developed it in concert with uh, the vendors. These are example, like expert examples of how to use Alembic. And in fact, these are the plugins that at Sony Imageworks today, we're actually using them in production yep, that's true. Um, <clears throat> and at both sides here. So these are basically, this is like the expert example of how to use Alembic. The one th important distinction about these and the reason we're calling them reference implementations instead of like the quintessential plugin for how you use Alembic is we don't have the resources to support these off into the future for users. Uh, that is why we're partnering with all the major vendors for them to be able to provide Alembic support directly in their application. Another cool new feature that came out of this year's worth of development is data deduplication. And what does that mean? That means that when you write a shape to an Alembic file, if that shape exists anywhere else in that database, in that entire file, it automatically uh, only writes at one time. And this is a lot different than instancing or some of the older technologies that you might be familiar with that can do a similar disk saving kind of thing. Uh, this doesn't require any user interaction at all. And Alembic automatically finds whatever reuse there is in the file and es essentially only writes that data one time. Um, so, we're seeing on uh, Men in Black right now, in production at Imageworks, a 48% disk space savings on average on every Alembic file if you compare today's Alembic versus the one without data deduplication. And then, of course, the big news, what happened in, uh, this year is we are releasing uh, Alembic 1.0 today. Um, so what does that mean? You can rely on Alembic for production use. The library is ready. Uh, that doesn't mean we won't still uncover a couple of bugs. There could still be a couple of bugs in there. In fact, there <laughs> probably are. Um, but we're using it in production, uh, both at ILM, at Lucasfilm, and at Imageworks. So uh, we think you can too. So specifically, um, I'm running it now on the new Men in Black film, and we're running it on the new Amazing Spider-Man. So um, and we're, and you guys... We're, yeah, we're using it for uh, Avengers, which is a rather large and complex project. And in fact, uh, ILM's uh, mostly done or, or uh, pretty far along with a, a bit of a, a pipeline refresh, retooling. Uh, to, in order to get ready for that project, and Alembic has been a, a big piece of that. 
So um, another thing that it means when we get to uh, 1.0 is we've made a bunch of promises. The Alembic team has made a bunch of promises to the community. And I don't expect you to read through all these. In fact, if you're not a developer, some of them aren't going to be real exciting to you. But for <laughs> developers, uh, being able to rely on a set of promises that this library is going to maintain going forward is really key. And for our partners who are putting it in their 3D animation software, they need to know what they can and can't expect from the future of Alembic. So, um, these are things we promise for future versions of Alembic. And you know, the most important one is Alembic data is going to be compatible moving forward. So if you save out Alembic file today, uh, tomorrow you'll be able to load it into future versions of Alembic. Um, so let's talk a little bit about performance. We talked about performance last year. Um, but let's see how that's actually panned out in real production. So we picked a shot from the Smurfs. This is a real production shot inside uh, Papa Smurf's house. This is a 217 frame shot. It's about nine seconds. And it's real production data. That includes the environments and the characters, everything you see here. So um, disk space. OBJ, to save out this same scene, is 87 gigabytes. And the same Alembic file, uh, one file, 173 megabytes. 99.8% disk space savings. Um, uh, we're also uh, more compact than FBX and a few other formats as well, but I'm mostly comparing to OBJ here in my examples. It, OBJ takes about a little bit more than an hour and a half, and we're three and a half minutes to ex export the whole scene uh, in Alembic. If you want to just read a single frame, it's 65 seconds versus uh, less than, uh, just over a tenth of a second, 0.2 seconds. And probably the most compelling thing is you can stream Alembic. It's a random access file format. You can get just the data you want. You can stream it randomly into memory. Uh, you can do that at 10 frames per second on a real Smurfs production scene. So this isn't some hypothetical scenario. This is, and just so you know, we didn't particularly optimize everything out of Papa Smurf's house that wasn't in the shot. This has the exterior of the house, too. This is how real production works. You don't have time <laughs> to tune these things for real-time performance. This is real data. We get it at 10 frames a second. That's uh, in Maya right now with the current version of Maya. And of course, you can make that go faster if you want to add some caching. Uh, ILM has some great results as well. Yeah, I just got uh, a couple of numbers, mostly about uh, disk space savings from, from some of our own productions. In this case, what uh, we're talking about is a, a, a high-res hero character, a deforming character, you know, the, the, the animating, performing, so pretty much all the shapes in the, in the character are changing um, every frame. So. Also, what I'm comparing this to here is our own, not OBJ, but, but our own internal format. So the, 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 the best version we had of how to cache out characters in the past something we call PBC, point-based cache. Um, and so the PBC for that performance, and I think this was about 50 frames um, of this, uh, this animation with two samples per frame for, for motion blur. Uh, the PBC was uh, 1.2 gig, roughly, and the corresponding Olympic acid is 353 megabytes. So for uh, a, a shot with Iron Man in it, Iron Man running around in this shot, which I think in this case was about 100 frames, in, two samples per frame again, the Alembic acid is less than 1% the size of the corresponding uh, PVCs. So we've developed Alembic. Um, uh, the governance model is a pretty simple one. Uh, Lucasfilm and Imageworks have partnered to govern the project. So we each have core developers who you know, argue out and argue the merits of every decision we've made in Alembic and with input from everyone else. And we've had a lot of input this year, uh, not, just from, not just discussion, but also code that has been contributed from a bunch of different partners. Um, and let me just give you a quick rundown on uh, the kind of support they have planned and are announcing uh, this year's SIGGRAPH. Um, Autodesk is showing support in Maya today. Um, they have announced that Alembic support will be included in the 2012 subscription advantage pack, which is due out fairly soon. 
the foundry um, has native Alembic support in Katana, um, and they are headed into beta in September. Side effects software, they're releasing uh, Houdini 11.1 this week, uh, which will be shipping with uh, Alembic support on the read side. So to see that kind of support this week is really great, especially considering we just finished 1.0 a couple weeks ago. <laughs> so they've been uh, right on our tail, uh, chasing very closely to be able to do that. Um, and Luxology is also here demonstrating Modo. And uh, today they're showing a, a, technical, a technical preview of this is for things to come. So we'll look, you can ask them specifically about their plans um, for their timeline for getting to the next step. Okay, in a moment we're going to discuss a bit more about open standards, but before we do that, John, I wanted to just, uh, we'll have a chance, I guess, to flag one of the reasons that's facilitating us actually being here at SIGGRAPH. Yeah, earlier this year we introduced the FX Insider program, which is basically a contribution to the site, helping us do things like this. It takes a lot of money to come to this. You've seen we've got a lot of podcasts, daily reports here from the show floor, and we've got a crew to help us out. And that takes, like I said, a significant amount of cost. And the Insider program is designed to help you contribute to us and in return we'll give you kind of special clips, extra bonus features such as unedited uh, videos, uh, audio podcast, uh, high-res images and more. Again, it's, it's the idea is that we don't want to kind of clutter the site with advertising. We don't have banners flashing all over the place, but we're kind of looking to our members to help us support what we're doing in Effectside because it, it is free at the root. Yeah, so a lot of you have already become members and joined Insider, and we really want to say thanks for doing that because we do appreciate mm -hmm. it. And if you'd like to learn more about Insider, if you go to the FX Guide site, not only will you see some of those Insider articles, and there are quite a lot now because we've been doing this now for a few months, but also you have a chance to contribute. And if you would like to make a donation or make a contribution to FX Guide, you'll see all the details are there. And we honestly genuinely really appreciate you doing it. Won't obviously ever cover all the cost of FX Guide, but it goes a long way to allowing us to provide extra content and just extra sort of services. Yeah, it really does. And so thanks again, as Mike said, thanks for those of you who have joined. Well, kind of getting back to some of the open source stuff, and a significant area of that development was stuff they talked about here, dealing with color. Yeah, now I think this is really interesting. Actually, we're covering this in uh, background fundamentals, and much of well, the rest of this interview, actually, um, I shot for background fundamentals, but I wanted to flag a bit of it here. now. In background fundamentals, we've been discussing color workflows, and, and uh, that's a significant part of this. But what's interesting about this initiative is it actually comes out of Sony again, which I really want to give some credit and, and uh, points to Rob yeah. at uh, Sony, who's their CTO. Since he's come on board, it seems like Sony has been really um, terrific in addressing the open source community head on. So open color IO is something that Sony's been using for its internal color management now since about, I'm going to say, 2003, 2004. It's at 0.8 release. So even though they've been using it for a few years, it isn't a full release yet as the way the, the modeling right. stuff is. Uh, but John, it's going to be picked up by the Foundry. Yeah, a lot of applications. I think you'll see a lot of applications supporting. We were just talking to the Foundry today about that. It's going to make their life a lot easier. And that's the idea is to make life a lot easier for everyone in the community. Yeah, from Nuke 6.3 v3, you'll actually have this mm. completely in the, in the code. It's just there. You can select it and use it. Prior to that, or if you're in another application, you'll actually at the moment still have to download the source from the uh, website, which is opencolorio.org, and there are links in the uh, obviously on FX Guide, and and you can compile it. But the idea here is that it's a color management system that's going to facilitate being able to have a lot of continuity, not only between facilities, uh, between what inside one facility, but also actually between different facilities. But the holy grail, which you'll hear in this uh, snippet from the interview, is that literally, John, if I was a nuke and you were a flame guy, mm -hmm. I could do some kind of translation in color space on my nuke station, 
and process the files, actually bake it in, hand it to you, you could do a whole lot of work and then you on a completely separate box could do the inverse transform even though it's a completely different box and be confident that we get back to where we started. It's that much kind of confidence. Check out this interview we did, uh, I think yesterday. Whenever you get a new piece of software for visual effects or animation or even things for publishing, they always typically handle uh, color management in a different way. So what OpenColorIO does is it tries to abstract that. It says every application, rather than having some custom color configuration, talks to OpenColorIO, and then you as the user or the client get to configure OpenColorIO. So if you wanted to, say, have like four different applications, such as Mari or Nuke or Katana or uh, Image Viewer, and you said, I want to use an IIF workflow, you just load your IIF profile into OpenColorIO, and they sort of all obey it. If you instead said, you know what, IIF isn't quite for me, I'm working with this other facility, we have to just use a standard film-centric workflow, you would just use load that profile and all of the applications would still agree. So it really allows all of the applications for image display and for color space conversions to give exactly matched results. Okay, now what if I've got a program right now, like uh, I'm on Flame, I yeah. come from being a Flame artist. Um, Autodesk isn't currently shipping yeah. anything that allows me in Flame to pick Yes. To, to handle my color yeah. through you. How do I work there? Well, certainly we'd prefer to work with Autodesk and we're going to sure. be reaching out to them to try to get native support. But even before then, as long as the tool you're using supports either 1D or 3D lookup tables, OpenColor actually ships with a series of command line tools, and we're going to provide GUI tools as well for this, that allows you to bake out your current profile to a 3D LUT. So in the case of using the Flame, we could just run the command line tool OCIO to 3DL, and it would generate a 3DL LUT that you could load into the package that would also match. Okay, so now what about if we go even further afield, because what we described is something that naturally supports 3D LUTs, yes. but Photoshop doesn't, it has ICC profiles. True, we also support that even, with uh, through the ICC profiles. So another command line tool, this is all sort of export capability for things that don't natively support it. Once again, we'd prefer for a painting tool to uh, support OpenColorIO, but we would never expect necessarily Photoshop to ship with that support built in. So you could use another tool to generate an ICC profile from your current uh, color configuration. So this is at, as we speak today, release yes. sort of 0.8. Yep. Though, given that you've already done a bunch of films with it, <laughs> because it was an internal tool at Sony, you know, why yeah. isn't it released? And also, surely at 0.8, you're already a lot further along than most programs are. Yes. So we've uh, all the Spider-Man films, Alice in Wonderland. Look at any of the Sony Imageworks films we've done in the last eight years, and they've all been using this technology. It's just that uh, something like color management, once you get it out there, you can't bring it back. So we really wanted to feel confident that the profiles, the format, the library is really robust in lockdown. So even though we're at 0.8, 1.0 is probably going to be in the next month or two, and it'll essentially be identical to what's currently being used. In fact, as, as soon as our first product probably ships with it, we'll probably just call that 1.0. It was good to catch up with Jeremy, and as Mike mentioned, a lot of color-related stuff is being covered over at FXPHD this term as part of the Background Fundamentals course. If you want to learn more, get your color chops up to speed, head on over to FXPHD. Well, on our next issue, or I think it's our next version of uh, FX Guide TV, I'm kind of a bit yeah, jet-lagged, yes. dazed, and lacking in sleep. I will be hooking up with the guys from a bunch of different companies, actually. Uh, Shotgun, but also... Uh, what made me think of this is CineSync because mm -hmm. we do CineSync in FX PhD for reviews of challenges and stuff and there's a whole new web solution coming out from those guys. So a bunch of stuff coming up plus a whole lot of interviews we've been doing here and at facilities here in Vancouver. Yeah, a lot of stuff coming up in the coming weeks and months but uh, that's it for now from Vancouver and uh, we'll head it back to uh, Angie. Thanks for that guys and now we hope you've been enjoying our coverage from SIGGRAPH 2011 from Vancouver, Canada. Email us your thoughts at tv at fxguide.com 
or you can post a comment at our site, fxguide.com. Until next time, thanks for watching. See ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.